Good morning, High Point. The scripture for today is Ephesians 6, verses 13 through 17. If you would like to follow along, you can, um, you can find it on the Pew Bibles in front of you on page 1781 and 82. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, and with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all these, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Thanks, Agus. Everyone. Hope you're feeling Christmassy. I am on day four of the four-day cold that some of you have had. And so, um, hopefully you won't be able to tell by my preaching that I was in bed for a good bit of the latter part of this week. But if so, that's my excuse. Okay. Um, if you're new to High Point, um, we're going through, we've been going through the book of Ephesians all year. So when we got to Christmas, we just kept going. And this part that's sometimes called the, the armor of God is the part we're in in chapter 6. And so we tie that in with Christmas. Because um, Jesus is God's great incarnate warrior. And sometimes we don't think of it that way because one of the reasons why this is one of the best times of year to invite somebody to church is because Christmas is much less threatening than Easter because there's a lot less blood on Christmas. You know what I mean? Um, it's just it's a little baby, right? So like one of the things that is, tends to be true of people is that there's, there's just— every, now there's nothing cuter than a baby. Everybody loves babies. You know what I mean? And— Part of the reason for that is that I thought I'd be real with you. That's what they look like, right? Um, part of the reason for that is like babies intuitively, like they trigger for us like purity and innocence and things not yet gone wrong. And it's like, it, it precedes all the great disappointments of parenthood. And it's like, you know, it's like, it's just like in the babies, like everything that could be. And it's this like time of hope and good cheer. And isn't this like, this, this kid's going to be the president in great world peace. You know? And, you know, they're going to own a diner is what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, so, but, but like, it, it is something about babies that just fills people with hope. You know, if they have any kind of, you know, unscrutiness about them at all. But the, the, one of the things that's interesting, though, is, is that in one of the passages that most kind of, like, declares that, like, this child is born is in Luke chapter 2. And it says, this is, this is the actual passage, right? And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today. And in, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is— Messiah, or the Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Right? And then suddenly there's a great heavenly host that's saying, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth on those who his favor rests. Okay, now listen. You guys, listen. 
why are you not laughing? Like, do you, do you not realize this is like the biggest joke in the Bible? Do you get it? Okay, who's David? David is the great warlord king of Israel. Like he, the thing that's special about him is there's two things special about him besides he's king. One is he had a heart mostly completely devoted to God most of the time. Okay? But even though he was a man after God's own heart almost all of the time, right? He didn't get to build the temple because he was what? A man of blood. That is, he had murdered people, right? That is, he was the great warlord king of Israel, the greatest warrior. So get this, okay? So in the city of the great warrior lord king, a savior has been— Okay, listen. The only reason you think savior is a nice word is because you're Christianly clichéized, Okay? And you think of Jesus as like, well, Jesus is the Savior, and he's so sweet and nice, and he just saves us. No, listen, the Bible is full of saviors, okay? They're all warriors, okay? Every salvation in the story of the Bible is someone is militarily enslaved and oppressed, oppressed by somebody else. They have no power to deliver themselves. A person comes in, usually by the power of God, and fights and kills their oppressors, and therefore delivers— and by implication, then saves someone. Right? Savior is a warrior term. A savior is somebody who militarily delivers from an enslaving oppressor, right? So in the city of the warlord king, a warrior savior has been born, who is the Messiah or the anointed king and lord, that is, the ruler. Okay? So in the city of the warrior king, the warrior— Savior, God's anointed king, ruler, has been born, right? And here's the sign that you'll know it's happened. You're going to find a baby. <laughs> See, you're getting it. <laughs> right? You're going you're gonna to go to this town, and you're going to find a baby, not in a proper onesie, <laughs> certainly without a breastplate and helmet, Laying in the food trough of an animal. Hallelujah! I receive that. You know, like, wow. Mm, gives you shivers, right? It's a joke! Do you get it? It's, it's insane! Right? And so, cause, but the reason why it's not, a, it's not a joke to us is because we already know the answer, the story, the, all the stuff, right? We know that the great warrior king in this coming is not going to fight and kill people. But you see, part of the frustration with that is we, we, get, we get confused a little bit. In this passage in Ephesians 6, most New Testament scholars believe that— because remember, there's no New Testament at this time. The Apostle Paul is writing while in prison to this people, and he, all he has is an Old Testament. Most people think that he had a very specific Old Testament passage in mind. This passage in Isaiah 59. Isaiah fi chapter 52 through to the end of the book is extremely predictive of the Messiah. Probably the most, most point-for-point point predictive text in the Bible of the Messiah is Isaiah 53, a few chapters before this. That's like, he was wounded for our transgressions. It predicts um, the Messiah's coming, his sinlessness, his death, that death being legally unjust at the hands of a government, that he would be raised from the dead. All that's predicted in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus is born. 
But as you move through the 50s, it keeps talking about the Messiah, the expansion of his kingdom in, in 54, how he will bring them together under what rule in 55, and so on. By the time you get to 59, it talks about people recognizing that in the rule and coming of the Messiah, he is going to come not because people are good, but he will come at that point to judge and rule as the just king who comes as the savior to destroy the oppressor, even if those oppressors at that point are human beings. Okay, and this is what it says. It says, our offenses, that is, this is the voice of all people, including God's religious people and not. It's, this is the voice of humanity speaking through the prophet. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. And then it says this. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal like a cloak. Now you'd be like, well, that's not exactly like Rome, like Ephesians 6. No, but that's partly because the conquering general emperor king doesn't dress like a normal legionnaire soldier. Do you understand? They don't carry a shield, for example. The general doesn't carry a shield. So he has the imposing helmet that looks awesome, way awesomer than everybody else's helmets. He has this usually a greatly ornate breast piece breastplate that's not like the breastplate of the people that they wear, but it's the same kind of thing, right? But then instead of wearing like a shield and the other stuff, he has like usually a magnificent cloak. And because part of it is this, the superhero doesn't need a shield. You understand? King Jesus doesn't need a shield. Your arrows aren't going to hurt him. See what I'm saying? He doesn't need it. He's just going to come. So what he, he's dressed for battle in splendor because he's the ruler. And so the armaments that he has on here are going to be slightly different from the ones of the normal foot soldier, which is how we're going to be described in Ephesians 6. Does that make sense? But you see how he's dressed? And he's dressed as a conquering king to come against injustice, to utterly destroy it. And he comes armed for battle in his armor, the—get it? The armor of God. You get it? He's in the armor of God as the Messiah King, the incarnate warrior. And then it says this. He's going to just—he's going to bring—and and now notice this. And this is very interesting because in Luke 4, Jesus quotes a passage about himself, and he stops the line before and the vengeance of our God. He doesn't talk about the vengeance of God in his first coming. And here, you can see that he wraps himself in his—this is, this is in reference to his second coming—in the robe of vengeance. But you'll notice there is no robe of vengeance in Ephesians 6 for us. Did you notice that? You don't get a robe of vengeance— you get it? You don't get it. You don't get one, okay? That's, in, that's theologically important. Do you understand? <laughs> the way God arms you for the spiritual conflicts of your life does not include a robe of vengeance. There's only one robe of vengeance, and it's on the Messiah King, okay? Now here's how the passage continues. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes, and he will repay the islands for their due. Meaning the islands are like the furthest out you can get. That means nobody's going to escape the vengeance of the coming Messiah who is to destroy all oppression and bring back honesty and righteousness and justice. Does that make sense? Okay. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. Now follow this. The Redeemer, that is the Savior, 
The Redeemer will come to Zion and those in Jacob who have repent, who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, remember the sword of the spirit? My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on forever, says the Lord Almighty. I want you to notice, do you see how the sword of the, in, in Ephesians 6, the sword of the spirit is what? It's the word of God. Do you see here? He says, my spirit that is on you and my words I've put in your mouth. See, there's, there's the parallel of the breastplate of righteousness, verbatim, the helmet of salvation, verbatim, and the direct correlation between the sword of the Spirit, that is the Spirit and the Word of God, being together that's going out from God offensively, and maintaining and resting on God's people permanently. Do you see that? That's the picture of the incarnate warrior Messiah. Now, it's important for Christians to recognize that one of the things that was confusing in the Old Testament was what, what was— true about Jesus in his first coming as the incarnate warrior, and what was true about Jesus in his second coming about him as the incarnate warrior. This is a depiction of his returning in glory in his second advent. Do you understand? Now, you could say, well, that's because, yeah, that makes sense because he seemed like he wasn't su super warish in his first advent. Well, that's true if you look at him in a certain way. Because if you look at the way he relates to people— people who aren't trustworthy and don't tell the truth and attack people who do what's right. You look at those people and how he treats them. It seems like he wants to give them a second chance. Like, his words are strong. He threatens hell. He tells them it's unrighteous. He tells them exactly what they need to hear. But he doesn't hurt them. You know what I'm saying? Now, the reason for that is this. There's two ways you can look at his combat. One is his offensive weapon in his first coming is the same as ours. The spirit— the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Right? So the way he attacks us is with the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. That is, he's trying—and the reason for that is this. He's trying to save part of us. Right? It says in Hebrews that the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. It can cut the distinction between bone and marrow, or bone and ligament. That, like, nothing cuts that. That's super sharp. Because to cut the difference between bone and marrow, you have to cut—you have to be strong enough to cut through the bone, but delicate enough to cut the razor-thin line between the bone and the marrow. And there's nothing more fragile than marrow. I don't know how many times you've broken open bones. I'm a hunter, okay? Like, nothing can do that. There is no blade in the world that can cut through a femur bone and not cut the marrow. It's that sharp, right? And you see, that's a surgical— action that can't be done. But you see, that's exactly what has to be done in you for you to be saved. Like, if you're going to be delivered from sin, death, and hell, the part of you that is the image of God, that is eternally important, devoutly loved by God, which is more important than anything that's ever existed in the world, the thing that makes you of divine interest and of absolute importance, right, is so intertwined with the flesh, with sin, with rebellion, with darkness, that to that you need a surgeon who can cut between those things and cut out the image of God and cut away depravity. Right? And that is the weapon the Lord uses against you if you believe or if you don't believe. That's the weapon he's using. He's using the sword of the Spirit, which is his word, which is attempting only with your cooperation and faith to do that surgical work to save you. Does that make sense? And then secondly, his word is also a spiritual weapon, that is the sword of the Spirit, against his direct foe, which is 
devils, and Satan. It makes a lot of modern people really uncomfortable, but the most common action of Jesus in the Gospels is exercising demons, casting out demons, getting rid of devils. It's his most common action. Most people don't want to admit that, or we will read over those super fast. You're like, well, I don't feel possessed right now, so let's just turn the page. You know? Which makes sense. Like, I can understand that, but don't you see that every single time he does that, he is claiming that he is making war. Every time what he's doing, every time he exercises a demon, he's pushing back the forces of evil and claiming the person that has been liberated as his own. And Satan now says, I've lost that land. Now that person is a prisoner because they belong to me. Every human soul, every heart, every person is claimed by Satan, and Jesus is coming to make his military counterclaim, pushing back those forces, right? I said last week that I was going to publish, um, republish in our podcast a sermon, why I defend why it's good for modern people to believe that demons and devils exist. Let me make just one point about that quickly here, because you have to kind of sprinkle these in along. Um, People get really kind of exercised in their modernistic bigotries about how there's all this, like, it's all this superstitious talk about devils and stuff in the Bible. Don't you realize that, like, all of these are explainable scientific phenomena that we can understand at a certain point? Fine. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe there are devils and we just don't have instruments to measure them. True. We didn't have echocardiograms a while ago, but there was stuff happening in human beings that we just couldn't measure yet. It's possible that everything that's spiritual is a kind of energy we just can't really Measure yet. I remember coming home from a vacation listening to NPR, which is not something we normally do in our vans coming home. But there, there was a study on people who felt like they could sense the presence of God. And there were some researchers that had created a certain kind of machine that would create an electromagnetic field of some kind to try to mimic kind of what they thought they were responding to. I thought it was really interesting. And, and these people that were like in the field this machine created was like, yeah, that's the, that's the feeling. That's really, that's really weird. And they were like, see? And then the commentators were like, see? We can create the feeling that people think is the presence of God. I was like, wait a second. When those people are feeling God, you didn't have the stupid machine. And what you're saying is there's an external thing you've made, which is a kind of energy, which affects people that they can feel a certain kind of way that they don't completely understand, but they know it's happening to them. Like, you're making an argument for the presence of God. Right? Now, don't get too happy because I've tried to find, like, that thing on NPR and I can't find it. So uh, maybe I'm just crazy. I, so if you ask for the source, I do not have it, okay? But I remember thinking that's interesting. But the point is this. Even in the Bible, like, sometimes people get the like, but yeah, but have you seen all that, all that, like, super, very superstitious medieval art where you've got devils clawing at people and all that stuff? Okay, so first of all, there's two problems. The first is, it's art. They aren't, it's not the science textbook, okay? It's supposed to be, like, evocative and speculative, and it's supposed to be terrifying. It's art with devils, right? But then, secondly— Sorry, my shoulders hurt. I have to pull it away. Um, but secondly, um, there's lots of scientific notions that we understood very primitively before and acted upon primitively that as time went on, we didn't get rid of the notion. We just understood it better and we acted better, right? And similarly, there's no reason to believe that the existence of spiritual forces and beings, that they exist, that they're opposed to God. If, there's, if you believe in God and there's one spiritual being, why can't there be 50 million of them? Right? If, if biology can create one organism, why can't it create trillions of organisms? Like, the, there's no reason in principle there shouldn't be more spiritual beings that are intelligent. If there are more spiritual beings than intelligent, 
It, it stands to reason that there could be rebellious ones. This is not crazy, right? But one of the things that's interesting in the Bible is people think there's a lot of crazy superstition in the Bible about devils. It says very little about devils. And both the word devil and Satan, which are commonly used, people think, well, you know, the devil, his name is Satan. The devil's name is not Satan. Those are both transliterations of original words. So the word, the name Satan comes from the Hebrew ha-satan, which means ha-the-satan, accuser in Hebrew, right? So he doesn't have a name, right? People speculate his name is Lucifer, but there's no official name given to the devil in the Bible, except for Beelzebub, maybe. But that just means the, the lord of the dung heap, which is also a metaphor, right? There's this, he destroys everything. He collects all the crap he ruins that he didn't create. So he gets this big heap of dung, and he's the king of it. Well, whoop-de-doo! Right? But the word Satan means the accuser. Guess what Diablos means? Right? The devil comes from the Greek Diablos, which comes from the Greek dia through, and balein, which is like the verb to throw. So the verb Diablos literally means to throw across, which is exactly what you do when you're having a fight. You throw stuff and you see what sticks. You accuse. The word Diablos is just Greek for the accuser. So if you say, you know, the devil, Satan, you're just being redundant. Right? You're saying, you know, the accuser, the accuser. Like his name just means accuser. All we know about him is he's there, and he's the accuser, and he's super bad. Right? And the more we get about the powers of darkness is very simple. It's always directly militarily operational. So for example, in chapter 6 it says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the forces, the authorities, and the spirits of darkness in the heavenly realms. Meaning, quit thinking that your spouse, your child, your coworker, your government, your opposing political party, the news anchor you don't like, the person who cut you off in traffic, the person who hurt you when you were a kid, is the real enemy. And here's what you need to understand. Because that idea, the idea that not only is the other human being not your real enemy, but that they're not your real enemy because something else who is a who, not just a what, is the only possible idea that can produce anything like world peace. Because if you believe that a thing that that person is utilizing is your enemy, you still don't have a somebody to be upset about. And you still don't see, you still see that person as an active initiator of evil. If you believe in something like a devil, you believe that the evil thing itself can emanate from the devil and the person can be in a state of deception. That is, being oppressed and being broken and being confused. And therefore, you can have the idea, it's my job not to destroy this other person, but to win them over. Oh, guess who thought that way? Guess who was exactly that kind of warrior? Now reread the Gospels and look at everything Jesus does. Everything Jesus does, every evil person Jesus faces, he treats that way. He treats a person who not, is not in himself the evil, but who has been taken captive by evil, and is being misused by evil, and is a tool of evil, and a dupe of evil. And the minute you start thinking about that way about your enemy, you actually can start to endeavor to do what Jesus commanded you do relationship to your enemy, which is what? To love them. Right. Now, there's two things we need to look at in relationship to— we probably need to get rolling here, don't we? So, therefore, re review is, one, you've got to understand that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against these things that the Bible calls principalities or devils. And all that means is it's a fairly technical reference to accuser. That's it. There's this thing called accuser. Right? And then secondly, we need the armor of God to be able to take our stand. That as a human being who is both physical and spiritual in some kind of composite form, the only way we can take our stand against these spiritual foes who are not physical, they are spiritual foes, is by having a certain kind of spiritual armament. That is what is being called the armor of God. Do you understand? So you have to understand that our fight is against spiritual forces, not flesh and blood, and that this thing called the armor of God is the only set of armaments that is sufficient and able to allow us to take a stand. Do you understand? Okay, so now, therefore, God's complete armor is the only effective assurance in our spiritual conflict. That's what you've got to get. God's complete armor is the only effective assurance in our spiritual conflict. So there's two things built in that. One is complete, right? One of the points about the armor is that you need every piece of it. It's not—I'm going to talk about each individual piece today, but remember, it's not mainly about the individual pieces. It's about that you have to put them all on. If you neglect even one part— that part can be your undoing. That part can—and remember, your undoing is not that you would sin. Okay, listen to me very carefully right now. Destruction in this combat is not that you would sin. Destruction in this combat is, is that you would lose your faith in the King and Lord and believe the accusations and be destroyed by them in your ability to believe to know who you are, to walk in your identity in Christ, and to be the human being who belongs to Jesus you are made to be. That is what death is. Do you understand? Not sinning. That's very important to understand. And so, it's kind of like a mousetrap, right? A mousetrap has seven parts, and if you take away any one part, it doesn't kill the mouse. You can't not pay attention to any one of these six armaments. Do you understand? It's very important. And then secondly, is that when you look at these armaments, one of the things that brings them all together, because they kind of seem like different things, one of the things that brings them all together is if you believe the gospel or the good news about what Jesus has done, these are all just aspects of what God has done for you in this thing called the gospel or the work of Jesus. What Jesus has done for you, what he is doing in you in the Spirit, how he is justifying you and bringing about your salvation, all the things Jesus is doing— these armaments are just ways in which that work assures you and strengthens you for your life in him. Does that make sense? They're all essentially mechanisms of faith, but they're all a little different. And in being a little different, they defend you differently against different kinds of accusations. Do you understand? Okay, so let's go through them. These are the six. I'm going to keep moving. Okay, so the first one, the first one is— what you can call the girding to the truth. That is, knowing the truth prepares you for action and agility. In the Old Testament, in the celebration of the Passover, when they ate the lamb to signify that they were about to go out of Egypt, they had to eat it a certain way, which is they had to have a staff in their hand, and it said this, and to have your cloak tucked into your belt, or more literally, your loins girded with the tucking in of your belt. Right? Why? Because, okay, this is really difficult, and I wish that John— Jalen would have included this in his song, Imagine. But you have to imagine a world without pants. Okay, just try to imagine, try to imagine a world without pants. Okay, because most of the ancient world was a world without pants. Okay, and so people wore different forms of robes. Either robes, if you were like an adult male who led a household, you'd have robes that went all the way down. And so like whenever you had to do something, 
you had to like tie something up in order for you to have the kind of movement and agility that you needed, right? And so if you were getting ready to go for a long walk, like in the past, if we're walking out of Egypt to the Promised Land, if you were going for a long walk, you would take a belt and you tie it, and you take the whole front of your robe and you tuck it into your belt so that your robe would, robe would come up to about here so that you could walk unencumbered. You girded your robe into your belt. With the kind of clothing you had in the ancient world, the first thing you do to prepare yourself for battle is you would tie a bunch of stuff in place so that you were ready to move. Do you understand? That's the significance of the truth, the quote, belt of truth. The word belt isn't in the original language. But since we have a hard time imagining a world without pants, the, the, the phrase girding up your loins is a nice snicker phrase, but no, most people don't know what it means. It means tying things up the way they should be from about here to about here. That's what it means, okay? Similarly, you have to believe the truth. You have to, you have to prepare yourself to move on the basis of the truth by understanding it and believing it. And that is the first step. One of the things that's interesting about you, you're like, why is the armor laid out like this? It's actually not laid out by importance. It's actually laid out by the order you would put them on. You gird first, then you place the breastplate, you secure the shoes, then you take up on the shield, and then most ancient warriors would carry the, whatever comes on the top of their helmet, they would carry that and their sword in one hand. And so when you go into battle, the last thing you would do, because you wanted full vision until you couldn't have it anymore, right? Right when you got into archer range, you would put on your helmet and prepare with your sword. So it's in ex the exact order you would put it on. The first thing you have to put on is the truth. You have to start with believing the truth, right? And you're like, well, what kind of truth? Like how— like, you know, cars drive or something? No, you don't have to under believe the truth of the combustion engine. What you have to believe is the truth laid out in Ephesians. Okay, when he says the truth, what he means is from Ephesians 1 verse 1 to now, which is that God has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly realms, that he has elected us and saved us, that he's died for us, that we were all under the dominion of hell and Satan, and that God, because he loved us, gave Christ so that we could be saved and we could be set free from it, and that he would make us his workmanship, and that he would destroy the dividing wall of hostility between us so we could become one people in Christ called the church, now heirs together with God, and that Jesus is the head of this new body formed and all growing together as God gives us people to strengthen us, and on and on and on. All of that is the truth, and that is the first thing that needs to happen. You need to know it, and you need to believe it, and you need—and that is the first step of arming yourself. There's a body of content of truth and promise, the work of the saving Christ given to you freely, but you have to not take it like advice. You have to believe it like news. You have to—you have to put it in your heart. You have to grab hold of it. You have to take it up. You have to gird yourself. You have to literally tie yourself up with it so you're ready to roll. Do you see the emphasis there? Who is the impetus on? You. Do you see how it's on you? God's done everything. There's already a belt of truth. There are, you can all, there's all kinds of girding to be done, right? But like, you've got to do it. Right? You've got you to do it. And listen, human beings are really foolish about this kind of stuff. But that's the first step. Okay, the second thing is, knowing you're standing in Christ settles your confidence like a breastplate. Um— one of the reasons people wear breastplates is, one, because it's very helpful to not get killed. But two, it allows you to think about other things than just your heart getting pierced every moment of the battle. Right? When you believe in Jesus, what the Bible says is that um, God counts your, righteous, your sin paid in the cross, 
And Christ's righteousness is placed on you as you come into union with Christ. As you become one with him, your sin is paid in his death, and his righteousness is laid on you as you are one with him. And what that means is that your standing with God is justified. Now, justification has to do with your standing legally or in relationship to a court of like a king. So are you a traitor or are you loyal or are you guilty or are you innocent, right? No soldier can fight if he believes that any soldier in the army can stab him in the back and kill him because he's actually a treason. He's counted as a traitor in relationship to the king. He has to know he has the right standing. He's ready to fight. He's facing outward toward the enemy, and he's, he's ready to do it. And you have to know that you have the right to have the armor. You have to know that you belong to Jesus. You have to know that you have the right to fight. You have to know that, Je- that Jesus in himself is standing with you in his spirit because— you are righteous in him, counted righteous in him. And therefore you have the confidence to stand there knowing that your most vulnerable parts are shielded with the shield that God gives, not that you earn. But the shield that God gives that you cannot earn, you must put on. Do you understand? Who is the impetus on? You. It says, endue yourself or put on the breastplate of righteousness. Because that's the only thing that can settle your mind and heart, that can put away your fears that you are not loved, you are not cared about, you are not made for this, you, right? You don't don't deserve to fight. You're not one of the people that the arm of God is for. Does that make sense? And when you have that breastplate in place— It allows you to do more than just keep your defenses here. It allows you to block and swing and help and fight. Right? I remember when I was a kid, I was like eight. I was like 10. My brother was 12. We were taking karate classes at the time. And so we were up in the attic, and we had the little punchy gloves, and we were like boxing each other. And he, you know, he's like in a puberty, and I'm like this little kid. So he's beating the snot out of me, right? And I was like, I don't want to play anymore. And he's like, well, this isn't fun if you quit. So I was like, well, if I get like some pillows to put in here— then maybe we can do this, right? And he's like, fine, whatever. So we get like a couple of those like kind of thick pillows and stuff them in my shirt, right? And like, he's just like, he's wailing on me. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh. And then I'm like watching his face. And the minute he drops his arm, I go, pow, right in his face, right? And he's like, what the, what the heck, right? I was like, sorry, right? And then he's punch, he's hitting me in the stomach. And I'm like, pow, right in his face. And he's like, what the heck? I was like, here's the heck. I wasn't thinking about my chest anymore. I had— armor, right? And so he's punching me. I don't care. So I'm like, show me your face, right? And I'm ready to throw the punch, right? The minute you know your defenses are capable, your your defenses are capable, now your mind switches to offense and you can think about attacking. The most vulnerable part of you is your thorax. There's all kinds of stuff to kill you in here, right? And the breastplate gives you the confidence to fight because you know you got—there's nothing—there's nothing to kill you from the side. God is for you, not against you, Right? Romans 8 says, there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you have to know that you're standing in that righteousness or your confidence will always be broken and broken easily, right? The third thing is, is that the ready, ready, go- the ready gospel of peace gives you stability and mobility, okay? Just like you need to imagine a world without pants, you have to imagine a world without combat boots, right? Real good shoes— were expensive in the ancient world, and they were fairly primitive. Most people who fought in combat in the history of the world fought with very, very poor footing because they had very poor footwear. In fact, probably almost half of the people who probably fought in the history of the world fought barefoot 
or in like really rickety sandals. But by this time, the Romans had developed a kind of boot that went all the way around the ankle and came up the calf a ways, and they actually had little metal cleats in the bottom of them, and you could lace them up really tight, but they still were sandals so that your feet wouldn't get really hot. And so you could march a long way, you could not get blisters, and when it came to hit shields against shields, which is what normally happened in most infantry fights, at some point you get shields against shields, and people are sticking swords in or sticking spears over, but it becomes about the push. Okay? It becomes about the push. It makes a big difference if you got cleats on. You know what I'm saying? If you're pushing against people who have like little sandals with little thongs, like they've got those like Teva mush sandals that like are so slippery when they're wet, you know, they're fighting with those things, and you've got like Roman heeled, cleated, and you're pushing them back, imagine what's going to happen. They're going to get pushed back. The people behind them aren't going to move back fast enough. That means these people are going to end up falling, and then you just roll over people. Right? What your feet are clad with makes an enormous difference about your your stability and your agility. Your capacity for mobility, right? Now, some people, when most people hear this who know the Bible well, they immediately think of Romans 10, which says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? And they think gospel of peace, feet bring good news. This is about evangelism. That part of the armor of God is like you get the footing of the, and you become kind of like Hermes. You can run around with that footing and tell people about Jesus. Maybe, maybe, but I don't think that's the point here. Because remember, the point here is standing your ground. The whole armor of God metaphor is under, you need to take your stand, you need to make a stand, you need to be standing. This is all about standing your ground, right? One of the things that keeps people from facing up to the—remember, what's, what's the main thing we're fighting against? We're taking our stand against the devil's schemes. Devil means accuser. So you've got an accuser or a liar— that is coming up with schemes, right? Does that make sense? That's what you're facing. A bunch of lies. What has to happen for you not to be manipulated by lies? Right? On one level, what has to happen is your heart has to just be at peace. You have to be at peace as a person. But I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and um, we were talking about their explosive anger, and I said, not only is your explosive anger like, bad for your life, and, and like a trial to everybody around you. But think just about how manipulatable you are. Anybody who wants to destroy you can. All they have to do is say something that just kind of turns you the wrong way or gets you angry, and you'll destroy yourself. Right? Because that person emotionally—and I've, I've counseled lots of people like this— that there's something about our hearts that isn't at peace. And because our heart's not at peace, we are— we, we will start sliding all around if people attack us in the right way. And li- listen to me. If there is a devil, he knows what you are not at peace about. Listen, anybody who mildly observes your life and is interested in it all knows what you're not at peace about. You don't think an ancient, intelligent, spiritual being knows what you're not at peace about? And that is one of the easiest ways to lie at you and to accuse you and to get you off your mark and to get your feet. Doesn't matter how good your shield is. Doesn't matter how good your breastplate is. Doesn't matter how good your helmet is. Doesn't matter how much you've girded your loins. How many Christians believe in the righteousness of Christ? They believe they have the breastplate of righteousness on. They believe the truth. They believe the whole Bible is the word of God and they believe that the gospel is true. They believe that truth. 
And yet you can get in their heads so easily. <laughs> and they'll blow up, or they'll go sideways, or they'll, they'll be filled with profound doubts, and they'll do self-destructive things, and they just won't obey Jesus, and they'll do whatever they think is going to get them happiness in the moment. You see, the problem is, is that the truth and the, the gospel which produces the breastplate of righteousness, their heart has not really been readied with the peace of the gospel. Their heart has never really been put at peace. And because the gospel has never gotten that deep, because they've never really put on the gospel enough, the truth about Jesus and his love of them and what salvation means and what it means that he's always with them and he's freed them from sin and that he loves them in the cross and all those things, because that hasn't really made it into the core of who they are, they are not at peace. And if you are not at peace, when those shields clash with each other, your feet are going to slide. You got no footing. Your feet aren't fitted. They're not ready. And so you see, faith in some ways is more than just assenting to belief intellectually by believing the truth. Yes, that's the, that's the first thing. You've got to assent to the truth. But then you've got to, in knowing the truth, believe that you're loved by God and counted right in Christ, and you have to put on the righteousness of Christ as a breastplate. And then you have to believe that therefore nothing can destroy you. That, that that if you don't get a promotion, or if you don't make it into that school, or if you don't get the right grades, or if your health doesn't improve, or like your marriage stays bad, or like no matter what happens to you, nothing can destroy you. Nothing can take away that which Christ has given you. The truth that you believe from Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing has been given you in Christ, and it's kept for you in that heavenly realm, and it cannot be taken from you. And that everything you lose, Jesus says in this life, you'll receive back a hundred times. That everything you give to God, he packs together and shakes and packs down and gives you far more than you could ever give him. Every sacrifice is preceded by the sacrifice of Jesus and supported by King Jesus. Like there is nothing that has a right to rattle you. And everything that does rattle you then is just, it's a place where the readiness of the gospel of, feet, of peace hasn't fully made a footing for you yet. And that doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It means God wants to take the truth deeper into your heart. He wants to open places of insecurity, where you've been hiding, places of hurt and trauma, all kinds of things, places of pride and self-assurance. And he wants to go into those places, and he wants to tear down all the, the rickety, fortifications of pride and fear that you've built, and he wants to tell the truth to those places, and he wants to free you from them, and he wants to remake you into the image of godliness and holiness. He wants to put you fully at peace. So that if like the people in the book of, in the book of Hebrews who rejoiced at the plundering of their possessions. That if, that if somebody came and took everything that you owned and everything that you have, your reputation, your job, and all of your assets were burned to the ground and you had nothing, your first reaction would be to rejoice that you were counted worthy to suffer for the beautiful name of Jesus. Right, like, how many of us are there? You've got to— Right? Paul says you've got to shod your feet. You have to put on the combat boots— of the readiness of the peace of the gospel. And the word ready means it's got to be there beforehand. You can't tie on combat boots when the shields are already pushing. You got to do it now. Shod your feet with that readiness now. And that's one of the things that sometimes people struggle with. And sometimes you need a mentor or a pastor, or you need an increased devotional life, or you need to actually pray 
in a different kind of way. You might need to engage in spiritual disciplines like journaling or something like that to really get at stuff that's hard to get at because the stuff that keeps us from peace is different than just assenting to certain doctrines. You understand? We got to move on. We've got like two minutes left, okay? It is faith that faces the fire. That's what the shield is about. Um, most breastplates from the ancient world could repel arrows from the ancient world. You don't technically need a shield if the arrow hits you in the breastplate. The problem is this. Without a shield, there is no set of armor that is sufficient to protect you. There's always like holes here and here and here. and There's always places that random arrows can come in and stick you. And the minute it sticks you, you're no good to anybody because you can't push. Now somebody's got to do first aid on you. The likelihood you're going to get infection and die is not too bad. Right? The only thing that is really effective against arrows is a full-size shield. In fact, the word that's used here is the word for large shield. It's a word that's built on the same word as door in Greek. So it's like a shield basically the size of a door. And the reason why people carried shields that big was so that when the arrows came in, they could actually protect their whole body but they also could work together with others so that, because remember here, all of the yous in Ephesians 6 are plural. Right? You, can tr you can actually scribble out you and write in y'all. Because they're all plural. Because the assumption, here's the assumption. Remember, you're an infantry soldier. There is no military in the history of the world where infantry soldiers fought like they fought by themselves. The, the whole reason of comparing you to an infantry soldier is because everybody in the infantry thinks this way. We fight together. We fight together. We fight together. We fight. You get somebody in a, in a like in an F-15 or something, they might be flying by themselves. They got to fight by themselves. They're trained to fight by themselves. You get like a commando who's like a special spy sniper guy. He's used to fighting by himself. But there are certain groups of people who never fight by themselves. And infantry are the quintessential military unit that never fights by itself. You always fight together. And especially when it comes to the shield. And especially when the arrows are on fire. Because you don't want that hitting your armor on fire. Because one thing, if it sticks and it doesn't go through, but if there's a fire, <laughs> that's the problem. What you want is for the volley to hit your shield, right? And then between volleys, you bring the shield down, you take your sword, you break off the arrows, you go back up. That's it. You extinguish the arrows of the evil one, you put the shield back up, right? You can't be stopped. And you need to understand that the shield of faith—there's this great quote from um, Charles Hodges says this. It is a common experience of the people of God that, that at times horrible thoughts, unholy, blasphemous, and malignant, crowd upon the mind, which cannot be accounted for by any ordinary law of mental action, and which cannot be dislodged. You know what I'm talking about? Thoughts that you're like, I don't want to admit to anybody I've ever had that thought. Or just terrible things just come to your mind. And it's not like there's some reason for it. It's, it's coming from somewhere that doesn't make sense, and you can't really get it out. And I remember talking to um, Vince about this when he talked about people who had like these recurring repetitive thoughts that were very negative and harmful. He's, he said, I remember him saying, because he suffers from this really terribly. Like Vince would get on a thought and he'd just go round and round and round and it would really, really hurt him. And I said, how did you get free of that? Because there was one, a point where he was depressed for months. He wouldn't mind me telling you this, by the way, because he'd want you to be helped by it. For months, he was like debilitated. And then he got free of it. And I said, what did you learn? And he said this. He's like, you can't talk to the thought. You just have to kill it. You just have to say no. Because there's no answering those kinds of thoughts. There's no reasoning with them. They're not reasonable thoughts. They're accusations 
disguising as reasonable thoughts. And you see, faith in some ways is the only thing that affects them powerfully. You have to just put up your shield and say, no. No, I don't believe that. God doesn't believe that. I belong to him. I believe what he believes. That's bull. I don't believe it. It's, that's it. I don't agree. It's out. I'm not talking to you about this. And it's the only way to handle certain things like that. I have to move on. Sorry. I'd love to say more about that. The, the fifth is the helmet of salvation. Because uh, this is important because sometimes people will be like, what does that refer to? Shouldn't it be the helmet of truth or something? I mean, it goes on your head and, you know, like— Salvation in this context, I think, refers to hope, right? What every enemy wants, especially if it's doing counterintelligence, is it wants to get the big give up. That's the biggest goal. What you want is to get in the heads of your enemy so that they don't believe success is possible. They don't believe that they can have victory or glory or either. That, that everything they give, everything they sacrifice, everything they risk will be lost. It's an unwinnable battle. One of the reasons, in fact, using fire, like fiery arrows— Okay, I don't know if you know this, but militarily speaking, fire arrows against infantry that have shields is almost completely useless, militarily speaking. It decreases the range of the arrow. They're not nearly as accurate. They don't hit as hard. They're much more expensive to produce. It's very difficult to light them on fire and keep them on fire. Like, there's all these problems with fire arrows. So why would you use fire arrows in infantry combat? Well, the answer is they didn't very often. But when they did, the whole point of it was psychological warfare. People are terrified of fire. They might as well throw in snakes on women. You know what I mean? Like, everybody's terrified of fire and snakes. It's like, it's, it, it, like, it, do, it doesn't actually kill anyone, but it makes every, it gets in everybody's head. That's why the Romans, they throw these, like, big burning things and blow stuff up, and it was all for fun, right? Like, it was to get in people's heads. It didn't kill very many people, right? And similarly, the devil is—his is, goal is that final moment where you say, I quit. That's his goal. It's always his goal. His goal is the contra conversion. Just like there's a moment where you must say, I believe in Christ. I submit to him. I repent of my sins. I turn him. He has always been Lord, and he's always been there to be my Savior. I was wrong. He was right. Lord, please accept me. And you receive Jesus by faith. And it's a moment called— conversion, or regeneration, or salvation. That has to happen, and it is a moment that happens, right? The devil is looking for the counter-conversion. He's not looking for the sin. The sin doesn't matter. The numerous sins doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many times you bring up that porn website. It does not matter how disgusting it is. What matters is to get you at the end of the shame of it to quit. That's the goal, is that you'd quit— Right? To get in your head enough to create enough doubt, enough different doubts over a long enough period of time to isolate you enough, to confuse you enough, to accuse you enough so that you'll quit. And Paul says, in all that mess, you take that helmet of salvation and you put it on your head. You're not just righteous in Christ. You have an eternal future. You've been given every blessing in Christ the Lord Jesus and the person of the Spirit is with you at every moment. Every sin in which you turn back to Jesus, he knew was coming. Sometimes he even uses them for your transformation. Like some—I read Peter Kreef say recently, he said, if you're struggling with lust and you just can't get free of lust, 
It may be that God is using lust to destroy pride so that you can be saved. Think about that for a second. A lot of the, a lot of the, the Middle Age Catholic authors used to say that. Middle Ages Catholic authors, not like after they turned 46. A lot, of the, a lot of the Catholic authors in the Middle Ages used to talk about that. That like, you had the seven deadly sins, but, but lust was a hot sin, but pride was a cold sin, and would destroy the soul from the inside. Lust was often a sin of infirmity, right? And so God might use your sins of lust to show your weakness and your failure to destroy your pride. Once your pride was destroyed and you would repent and find humility in God, then the Spirit could actually enter your life and begin to transform you. And then as He transforms you in the state of humility, you grow in strength. Your infirmities become weaker, and you overcome your hot sins of infirmity, i.e. lust. Listen, Jesus will use anything. He'll use anything to redeem you. And He'll do anything to encourage you. And He's given us so many promises that are worth so much more than the fiery darts of the lies of the accuser. And that all makes up something called salvation. Everything God has promised you, beyond righteousness, beyond just telling you the truth, everything he's promised you, everything that will come to pass, everything that is your inheritance, everything that is bound to you in your metaphysical union with Christ himself, the head of the living body, is all yours, and it is your salvation. And you need to put it on your head to vanquish the doubts that come. Especially the irrational and foolish and uncurious doubts. And then last is the sword of the Spirit is the spoken word of God. The spoken word of God. So in, in, in Greek, the normal word for speaking is logos, which means—the normal word for word is logos. So it's sort of the content of speech. There's another word that's used pretty uncommonly— um, and it's the word rhema. It's, in the, it's used in those verses, if you want to check the context. And w- the word rhema is, is used basically to, to refer to uttered speech. Speech that is spoken. Sometimes it's in a prophetic context. In the cases in Romans 10, it's usually in the declaration of the truth of the gospel. That is this. The power of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, isn't just in the fact that God has spoken and shown himself. It is in your use of the things God has spoken and shown about himself that you speak out. You have to believe them and say them, right? Remember, infantries fight together. We have to say them to each other. Our offensive weapon is mainly encouragement. To take the doubts that are attacking somebody and say to that person, listen, Sarah, that's a lie. There's no truth in that. There's a— and that's an accusation. That's a fiery dart, man. Let's get our shields together and kill that thing. Or positive encouragement. They're like, no, I see God working in you. I know even this suffering, I can see you growing stronger. I can see, the, like, the word of God spoken is a weapon. Not the word of God hidden. Not the word of God merely on the page. Not the, the word of God assumed. But the word of God spoken towards each other in help, in encouragement, is our offensive weapon. Now think about it. Some of you, some of you men, well, this is true for all of us, but for a lot of men, we feel kind of silly and embarrassed when we give heartfelt encouragement to other guys. It feels so much better to just kind of cut up on them sarcastically a little bit. You know what I mean? And it feels almost unmanly. We feel almost unmanned in the embarrassment of saying very deeply heartfelt things to other men and other people, even our own children, right? Put it in this metaphor. You are supposed to be a warrior. And those words of encouragement are literally your sword. 
And if you don't say those words of encouragement to strengthen others, you're not using your sword as a warrior in war. That's silly. And to quote Second Peter, ineffective and unproductive. Right? I can say a lot more, but what I want you to leave with is this. None of these are things you achieve. These are all things we have to believe. We put them on, not just by believing them just a little bit, but by believing them more fully, more deeply, more completely, more experientially. Working them into areas where we don't want to deal with them. Letting them attack areas of our pride and our traumas and our pains and our insecurities. So they go deeper and deeper. And the deeper they go, the more fortified they become. And the more effective the armor is. And the more we use it together. And the more we can make the war we're supposed to make against the forces of darkness and not our neighbor. So that we can actually be warriors of peace. Surgeons with so sharp a sword, we can help cut away the image of God from depravity and release people from the oppression of sin. Each other and those God puts in our lives. You have to put on the whole armor of God. Let's pray. God, thank you that um, you've put this in the Bible. I pray that you'd use the stuff that I said that you agree with to convict and move your people forward into freedom and strength and faith, and love, and peace. And I pray that things I've said you would make eminently forgettable to all. And um, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us as your church to glorify Christ, your incarnate warrior. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.